If you have your scriptures, open them up to uh, John chapter 2. We're going to continue with this theme of the new creation uh, that Jesus inaugurated. And so I'm going to read to you this very, very familiar passage uh, of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Almost everyone has heard this story where Jesus turns water into wine. It's a legit miracle. It's uh, really, really amazing. Uh, And so let's read it and try to, if best you can, I know that we all, uh, many of you, if you're a Christian for a long time, you've read this story or heard it a hundred times. Try to look at it with some fresh eyes, and I'm going to tell you what, what, uh, what, what John is trying to get across to us is profound. It's really wonderful. So let's read these uh, verses. Now hear God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars of water there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely... Then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Years ago when Marty V and I, we had just been married a short time, but we we were invited to go on a trip uh, to Las Vegas. not New Mexico, the one in Nevada, where all the casinos are, you know, the, the Sin City and all that. So we went to this uh, uh, first time I'd ever been to Las Vegas, and of course, I went wild. I got money and chips and went crazy trying to gamble. I lost all my money. Marty V put some money into one slot machine, and she hit it and made three, four hundred dollars and went and bought herself some jewelry. So, <laughs> so she came away in good shape. Uh, but while we were there, we got to see this uh, magic show. Um, some of you may have heard of it. Uh, if not, Siegfried and Roy, you know, they have the white tigers and the white lions, and they make them disappear, and it's really quite an amazing show. Well, we got our tickets late, and they seated us in the, in the theater. If you all remember the old days in Las Vegas, before they tore everything down, they had these theaters that were, more, they were smaller. Now they're extravaganzas, but these were small theaters, and uh, there were dinner theaters, so, you know, you ate, and then you watched the show. And so we got our tickets late, and we had terrible seats. Uh, they, they put us way, way over to the side, and uh, we couldn't really see very good, and we were down low, almost on the floor, and we were looking up like this, and we were way off to the side. And I noticed, to my horror, movement behind the stage. And I saw people, men and women back there, dressed all in black, uh, 
head to toe with little holes cut out for their eyes, but they were dressed in black so you couldn't see them, and they're running around and they're doing stuff back there, and they had wires, and they were moving these big mirrors, and I got to tell you, it took all the fun. I saw exactly how they did it. Now, they have sworn me to secrecy, so I can't tell you. But it spoiled the show because, I mean, everybody else was seeing magic and I was seeing cables and mirrors and, you know, Siegfried and Roy drinking and, you know, it was no fun. And it was a big waste of money. When we think of miracles, the miracles of the Bible, and there's, there's not a lot of miracles in the Bible. You may think there are, but there really aren't. There's only five very brief periods of miracles in the Old Testament, very specific what they did and why, very brief. Five times in the Old Testament of, of 1,500, 1,800 years. Very brief. New Testament, you've got a lot of miracles in the life of Jesus and some in the Acts of the Apostles. But even Jesus, it was not miracle, miracle, miracle. He, he was very selective in what He did. And when He did them, there were reasons why He did them. And it was not to perform magic. Jesus' miracles, in the Greek, they used specific Certain words for miracle, for work, and here in John, for signs. And the word for signs in Greek is semeon. And that word conveys the idea that the, that the miracle or the sign or the work that Jesus was doing was something that was pointing elsewhere. And in fact, if you carefully go back in your Bible and you see all the signs and miracles that were done in the Old Testament, they were simply to point to something else. You say, well, what about the Red Sea? I mean, what was that pointing to? That was God going into the Tohu Vabohu. Those of you that were here for the Genesis series, you know it was the chaos, the sea. The sea was a barrier. The sea was a threat. They couldn't cross the sea. The sea was full of monsters. And the, and the Pharaoh's coming with all his army and they're going to die. And God splits the sea. He's the Lord of the sea. He's the God of heaven and earth. He controls the chaos, the tohu vabohu, and He brings order to, to all things and protects His people, even in the midst of chaos. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? That's what it was pointing to. Deliverance and freedom that would come really and truly someday. So the miracle was legit. It really happened. But it was not the thing itself. It was simply pointing to something. And while it rescued the people, we love that, it was still pointing to something. And you've got to look at all miracles that way. They're all pointing to something that's real. You think, well, the miracles were real? Yeah, but not really. They were pointing somewhere. Listen to this. Uh, this is from uh, R.G.V. R- Tasker. He's a New, New Testament commentator. And then I'll read you another quote from uh, Doc, uh, Don Carson. This first of a series of signs, listen, Turning the water into wine is not a purposeless exhibition of supernatural power. It's not trying to prove that Jesus was some, you know, miracle worker or or something like that. There were miracle workers everywhere. But he legitimately did something, but it was not itself the thing we were to concentrate on. It is not a purposeless exhibition of supernatural power, but a teaching miracle of deep significance, significant sign. For none of the miracles of Jesus were merely, listen to this, none of them were merely kind actions to alleviate human distress and nothing more. They did that, but they were more than that. 
They were signs pointing to something else. Displaying, listen to this, you got to love this. Displaying the glory of Jesus and the wonder of His redeeming, His saving grace. Just like the Red Sea. It was an act that saved the people of Israel and it became the saving act of the Old Testament people. Whenever they wanted to talk about God coming and saving them the way we do about Jesus coming and saving us on the cross, what did they talk about? What did they point to? They said the Exodus was our salvation moment. The Exodus was the moment that God saved us as a people. It's just marvelous. Listen to what Don Carson says. Jesus' miracles are never simply naked uh, uh, displays of power, conjuring tricks like Siegfried and Roy, conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could only be perceived with the eyes of faith. See, the world looks at the miracles of Jesus and they either think He was just doing magic tricks uh, or He was just pulling the wool over people's eyes or maybe He really did have power but He was just a, you know, He was like a magician. But the eyes of faith will look at the miracle and say, wow, that's a, that is amazing. But we, those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, we know that there's something else beyond that. And I'm here to tell you that that's true and you don't have to believe me, but I hope you do. He's pointing to something. What is he pointing to? So if that's true, what is this wedding pointing to? What is this miracle of wine, uh, water turned into wine pointing to? So let's look at three things real quick. Here's your outline basically. The woman, we're going to look at the woman first. The wine, and then finally we'll look at the wedding as a whole. So what about the woman? Jesus does something very interesting. His mother is concerned. Many scholars think that they're at a wedding of their family members and that they're probably close family. And Mary, of course, his mother, she's a wonderful lady, and she's concerned about the fact they're starting to run out of wine. Now for us, we may not think that's a big deal, but, but I'll explain it in a minute. So she, she comes to Jesus and she says they have no wine. And we expect, you know, she's telling him to do something. We're not sure what he's supposed to do. But here's the background. This is why it's so significant. And my family uh, came from Lebanon. They came from the Middle East. And so they emigrated to this country back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But they brought all of their uh, weirdness with them. Like many of your families who came from somewhere else, you know, we bring our weirdness with us. And one of the weird things about my family is whenever they served a meal, it was obscene. The amount of food, the, the variations of food, all handmade by our grandmothers, and they start cooking on Wednesday and cook till Sunday. And then they'd invite people. They'd invite three or four people or, you know, an octet of people because you've got to have just the right number. And they'd invite everybody. And sometimes there were 60 people at my grandmother's house. It was crazy. And you would think, oh my gosh, she's going to run out of food. Not in a Middle Eastern house. That would be death. That would be shame. Their heart would just stop if they ran out of food. So there was always, I have pictures, I can show you the table. It's crazy, crazy. There is food and food and food. Then you look past the table to the countertops in the kitchen, there's food and food. We didn't have 10 desserts, right? There were not 10 desserts. Guess how many desserts? Oh, 15, 20 desserts. That's just the beginning. And then there were meats and there were vegetables and there were everything, everything. It was 
a crazy craziness. Now, some of you come from families like that. Some of you are saying, I don't ever want to be around people. They're nutty. We were, but she, the thing was, they could never run out of food. They couldn't possibly. That would have been the most shameful thing to happen. Now, for us, we don't think about it. You know, as Americans, I mean, our modern day, we don't think about it. Ask my wife. I fret. I want to have double of everything. I can't worry about it. And I make sure everybody's eaten twice before I even have my first serving because I'm scared they're going to run out. Think about 2,000 years ago. This was even more, and I'll tell you why. The bridegroom, unlike the United States, unlike the West, the bridegroom, the man, his family was responsible for the wedding and everything in it. So the bridegroom is responsible. The bride responsible for nothing. Her family was responsible for nothing. She came with her dowry and that was her payment to get into the family but they were, after that, they were taking care of everything. So it was, and that's very significant. Plug that in. Bridegroom, responsible. Got it? Everybody? Bridegroom, responsible. Now, what would happen if they ran out of food? Well, there would have been incredible shame. In fact, it's the same way. Those of you in the military, you've been to Afghanistan or to uh, Iraq or any of these other Middle Eastern countries, they, they, they will sell everything they have to make sure that you have one meal if you come to their home. It's, a, it's crazy, but in a way it's good. But that Near East hospitality is in your Bible. It's throughout your Bible, from Abraham uh, to all the way through the Scriptures to the Last Supper. Hospitality was huge. And if you failed in hospitality, if you ran out of food or ran out of wine, it brought such shame on your family it would take generations to erase. So they never took uh, having abundance for granted. They had to have it. The other thing, and this is very interesting, you can read about this in the commentaries, there was also not only shame, but there was guilt. You see, civilly, they were responsible to put on a party that would accommodate, didn't matter how many people, and if they failed, they could be liable for a lawsuit. So your new in-laws could sue you for not having provided a meal substantial enough to cover all their guests as well as your guests. Do you get the picture? They were uh, vulnerable to both shame and guilt. Civil prosecution was possible. And the shame just of have not having enough. So when... Mary comes to him and says, they have no wine. We don't know what she expected Jesus to do. Our mind runs real quickly to think, well, she wants him to do a miracle because she knows how special he is. I don't think that's it. But if you want to believe that's okay, I think there's more to it than that. She's very concerned because the shame and the guilt is staring her in the face because it's her family. We know that it was probably a close relative. And everybody's there. They invited the whole town. They invited everybody. The disciples are there. Big deal. And he says to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? Or, what do you want me to do? He, he says this very enigmatic thing, and he uses woman. He doesn't say mom. He doesn't say mother. He, doesn't use, he uses a less respectful term, although he says gune, and gune is a respectful way of saying mother, but it distances Jesus from his mother. He doesn't use a term of endearment. He uses a very common term, woman or ma'am, in the south we would say ma'am, he's not addressing her as mom. He's, he's pushing her back a bit. And then he says this, and he uses a very, uh, I didn't know this, a, a, a phrase that, uh, in, in, it's a Hebrew idiom, and literally it's, it's, 
here's how you translate it literally. What to me and to you? It's a question that is hard to translate into Greek from Hebrew and it's hard to translate into English. And why you see in almost every Bible the question he asks her, what do I have to do with you or why involve me or what's going, you know, why bother me with this? Nobody can really get their head around it. But basically what he's doing is he's, he's gently, listen, mildly rebuking his mother because of the hour. Now that's significant. You see, Jesus is saying something. He knows what's going on. He knows, he knows that shame and guilt are on the horizon for this family. He's concerned about their needs. But he is not going to let his mother or anyone else on this earth decide for him when he does a miracle or a sign because it's going to have meaning. It's going to be pregnant with meaning. And so it can't simply, merely be to make sure they have enough wine. It has to be something else. And he says so. He says, why are you bothering me? My hour has not yet come. And when he says hour in the Gospel of John, he uses it all the way up until chapter 12. He is talking about the hour of his death, his crucifixion. And in John chapter 12, he says, my hour has come. And then you have the meal in the upper room and the betrayal and the trial before the monster, Pilate. My hour has come. But here, my hour has not yet come. Listen again to Dr. Carson. Jesus is mildly, courteously rebuking his mother. He declares, listen to this, it's just marvelous. He is declaring to his mother, his own mother, his utter and complete freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. His only guiding star, the only thing in Jesus' horizon, in the windshield of his life, he had one guiding star, his Father's will. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. He was not being mean to his mother. He was saying to his mother that Mary, like every other person in this world, you and me included, every one of us must come to Jesus Christ on His terms, not on ours. We come to Him on His terms as the Messiah. Not our co-pilot, not our pal, not our buddy. Our Messiah, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't you love that? He was not going to even let this mundane thing. Yes, He was going to change the water into wine. He, he knew He was going to do it and He wanted to do it. He wanted to make sure that the shame and the guilt of those people was taken away. And removed, but it had to be on his terms. Why would he do that? To point to something else. And what did she expect him to do? We don't really know, and I don't want to speculate. You know how I feel about speculation. So he uses this occasion 
of the sign and points to something beyond. It carries all the freight. It is, it's just bearing all the freight and the weight of the cross because he invokes the cross when he says, Our. So he's, everybody's signals should go up and say, what is, okay, something more is going on here than just a dazzling miracle where he's going to stun everybody by making wine. I mean, nobody knew but his disciples and the servants. The text tells that the story is marvelous. He could have written it in the sky, but instead he did it so only the poor people and only his poor disciples could see the majesty and the glory of his power because they had faith. If everybody had seen it, they'd have just thought he was a magic worker, a conjurer, Siegfried and Roy. They would have wanted to know when the white tiger's coming out. But he wouldn't allow for that. So he gently, courteously pushes his mother back and says, No, it's not about the wine. It's not about that. So what is it about? What is the sign? Let me give it to you quickly because I want to get finished here. John goes into excruciating detail. And whenever you see this kind of detail in the gospel, it's not just for information. He's not just wanting to tell you the facts. They didn't do that in ancient literature. Ancient literature just didn't have things like Jesus laid his head in the back of the boat and he laid his head on a pillow. There's no ancient literature that has anything like that. The, the details are not, but Jesus' uh, disciples, these, these recorders of the gospels, put these details in there because they're part of the sign. They're making a point. They mean something. Six jars. John loves symbolism. Have any of you read the book of Revelation? He loves it. He's out of his mind with it. He can't get enough of it. He uses it when he doesn't need to use it. He could have just said, this is this. No, I'll write chapter 17 and confuse everybody. John loves this. But ancient, the ancient world, they thought like this. It's tough for us to go back 2,000 years and think like that because we're very, you know, we just want the facts, nothing but the facts, blah, 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 bang, 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 proposition, proposition, bring me to the end, and then I'll decide because I'm an American, I have rights, I can choose or not. And we just sit back and kind of, you know, we're very arrogant that way. We want the facts. If Jesus came in here and you told him, I want the facts, just the facts, do you know what he would have said? Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the facts. You can't handle the truth. If I told you, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you so you can understand. So he gives us this beautiful story. And there's six stone jars, not seven. Why? Because six is incomplete. Seven is complete. He doesn't create a new jar, but he fills the six incomplete with what will make it complete. It's purification, but it's just water. What can you clean with water? Dirt. What do you need to clean sin? How would you possibly clean sin away with water? Not enough. There isn't enough water on the planet earth to clean away one single sin. We can't do it. There's not enough money out there. There's not enough good works out there. There's not enough nothing out there to touch one sin. What are you going to do? Pour a little water on it? The water was given to Israel. These, these purification rites were given to them to point to something else. Yes, you need to be purified. Yes, you need cleansing. And for now, I'm going to give you water so I don't have to kill you and take your blood. Because that's what it would take, right? Maybe? Yes, yes thank you. One yes. The rest of you can go home. 
<laughs> no, come on, folks. We know that if, you're, if you've been around the church any length of time, you're not going to fix your sins by being a good person. Good luck with that in the famous words of John Calvin. Good luck. That was very funny. I don't know what you all are thinking. Okay, never mind. Look. Purification. Yeah, we've got to be purified. I'm going to give them wine. They don't have enough wine. Wine's a symbol for blood. 20 and 30 gallons. Wow, that's a lot of wine. It's a lot of water. It's going to be lavish. It's going to be an endless supply. That when you go to that water pot and you dip your ladle and you bring the water up, it is going to become wine for you. And it will never run out. Don't you ever stop and say, I can't take this sin to Jesus because it's too much it's too bad. It's, I've done it too many times. He just won't understand. They filled the pots to the brim. And when they took it out, it was wine. Because he's saying it will never end. It will never draw down. It will never be less than filled to the brim. Because you're going to need it all your life. And it's okay. I understand. Come to me. Bring your junk to me. Don't run away. Don't try to fill the pot yourself because it's only going to get full of water. And it's going to be dirty water because you've washed your hands in that. That's what they were... You know, before Jesus got there, they were pouring that water into, into plates that had been consecrated and all them. I mean, they had these purification rites you can't believe. And they're washing their hands and it's not for sanitation. That wasn't what they were doing. They're purifying. They're getting the sin away so they can enter into this, this feast. And Jesus isn't saying anything bad about that. Fine, do that. But no, it's pointing to something else. And folks, when our Savior died for us on that cross, He was saying to you and me, I love you. And I'm going to put something on deposit for you that will never run out. It will never run dry. It will always be new every morning. You come to me for mercy. I will give it to you. How many times, Lord? Seven times? Seven times 70. And you say, oh, well, you're giving us permission to sin. If you think that, you don't understand what was in those jars. If you think this is permission, if you think you're saying, oh, la-di-da, you can just sin however you want, you don't know what was in the jar. You don't see the sign yet. You haven't mixed it with your faith. We, a person that knows what was in the jar drawn out for you with no bottom, sin becomes abhorrent to you. You think, how could I possibly betray my Lord? How can I do it? And so His love for you becomes a motivation for you not to sin. Not guilt. Guilt won't do it. Has it worked yet? Everybody in this room has lived under a weight of guilt. Has it ever kept you from sinning? Ever. Say no. No, it doesn't keep you from sinning. It just makes us feel bad about our sin. Which we should. But what will take it away? The wine. You're going to get a taste in a minute. And if you can come to the table today and be the same afterwards, listen, there's probably no hope for you. This is, what, this is the heartbeat of Christianity. The Holy Sacrament and this message that it's pointing to. This is Christianity 101, like I told our class this morning. 101, this is basic. 
Fill it to the brim. Listen to what Tasker says again. Jesus wished through the symbolism of water, turned to wine, both to expose, listen to this, the inadequacy of Judaism as a religion for salvation and to initiate His apostles into the idea of His own redeeming death. So we saw the wine, we saw the woman, we looked at the wine. Now, let me tie it up for you, the wedding. Look at uh, verses 9 through 11, just the last little pit. The master of the feast tasted the wine. He's shocked. Wow, this is good wine. Where did it come from? He, he didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. And he calls the bridegroom. Remember bridegroom. He calls the bridegroom and he says to the bridegroom, you know, most people put out the good wine first and then when everybody uh, has drunk well, which he's saying when everybody's had enough to get a, you know, a good buzz on and they're kind of, then they bring out the other wine. In case any of you think they were drinking grape juice, uh, you can drink gallons of grape juice. This doesn't do it. It had alcohol in it. Dear me. And that's why I became a Presbyterian. So, <laughs> help me. Help me, Hugo. Say me too. <laughs> I'm all alone up here. Okay, never mind. No, he made, he made regular wine that would inebriate if you drank too much, which you're not supposed to do. You've kept the good wine till now. And this first sign, it says, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Remember he had told Nathaniel, if you were here last week, he told Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. Just wait till we get to Cana. Wow, you're going to see water turn into wine. And that's just the, that was just the beginning. He manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. So what's going on? Jesus uses this occasion of the wedding to say, to point to His whole ministry, His whole life, the whole reason that He came, folks. The entire reason He came was to celebrate, to bring joy and gladness and dancing and feasting and glory and goodness, and make sure to cover our shame and our guilt, both. Because we don't have any wine to give. We don't have anything. We got water, and it's not that good. He gives us wine. He gives us a feast. He sets the table. And Isaiah said this, listen carefully to these words of the prophet 700 years before this event. Jesus was thinking of this. I promise you, I don't know for sure, but I think He was thinking of this passage as He stepped over and said, fill these jars. Listen. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, all people, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He's talking about death. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away, listen to this, He will wipe away, He Himself will wipe away every tear from all their faces. And the shame of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And this is only one of many scriptures that say this exact same thing in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places where the king is going to come and he's going to throw a feast and he's going to take a bride to himself. And John, the one that wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, here is how he concluded it. So that you know I'm not making anything up. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bridegroom, as a bride, as a bride adorned for her husband, her bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice calling from the throne as the city is descending, which is a a metaphor for us, descending the church, in all of her glory, finally clothed after being naked and shamed and guilty, now clothed and down she comes and a voice announces her coming. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be their God. He Himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For all the former things have passed away. In this one stroke, this majestic stroke of a sign, and Jesus does more in the Gospel of John, each one better than this one if you can imagine it, pointing us to this wedding feast when we will be taken as His bride, the great bridegroom who gives His life so that we can have that wedding. He pays for the wedding. He gives His blood, His life, so that we won't feel any shame, no guilt. No, for you. For you. That becomes our life, our heartbeat. Will you trust Him? Jesus is asking you to marry Him. Will you do it? I hope you will. Father, we love You and thank You for this, the gift of Your Son, our Savior, who didn't take us, just free us from the court of law where we were guilty. He didn't just throw rags around us to cover our nakedness. He didn't just say, I forgive you and let let us go. He said, no, I want you to be my child. I want you to be my bridegroom. And Father, as we come to this table, we come to nothing less than the banqueting table of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a foretaste of that great final day. And I pray, Father, as everyone comes this morning to take the bread and wine and to eat and drink and taste and see that you're good, your mercy endures forever, that you will descend in the power of your Holy Spirit that we might experience the love and the embrace of a Father who loves us and cares for us.
Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.